Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, The dignity of man, Lyndon Johnson. What about women? What about women? I guess back in those days, uh, it was all about men. Things are changing, though. And unless there are some really big surprises, it looks like America is finally about to get our first woman president. Today, we're talking about a new book called The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the Presidency with author Ellen Fitzpatrick. How big is this really for women? Will it mark a significant turn away from sexism and routine oppression of women through negative and sexist images? First woman president, how meaningful and historic will it be to have a woman president? Why has it taken so long for a woman to be taken seriously when she runs for president of the United States? This book looks at three important examples of American women who have tried to become president. Some you may have heard of, others not too likely. Ellen Fitzpatrick, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. My pleasure. Thank you. Ellen Fitzpatrick is a professor and scholar specializing in modern American political and intellectual history. She's the author and editor of eight books. Her last book, New York Times bestseller Letters to Jackie, became the basis of a highly regarded documentary film by that title. She has been interviewed as an expert on modern American political history by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the L.A. Times, USA Today, the Boston Globe, Washington Post, CBS's Face the Nation, and now right here on Keeping Democracy Alive. My guess is that most Americans have assumed that Hillary Clinton is the first serious female presidential candidate. How many women have sought, been nominated, or received votes in presidential elections in this country? And in answering that, why did you choose to focus on Victoria Woodhull, Margaret Chase Smith, and Shirley Chisholm? So first, how many have seriously run for president? Over 200 women over the course of American history have set their sights on the presidency. Most of them waged, uh, at best, quixotic campaigns, and they gained very little traction in their efforts. But uh, what I drew me really to the case of Chisholm uh, Woodhull, Margaret Chase Smith, and Shirley Chisholm was the national conversation that their candidacy sparked at particular moments in a, American political history that both led them to seek the presidency and also engaged 
the public uh, about the idea of having a woman uh, standard bearer um, and, in fact, chief of state had they been successful, which, of course, they were not. Right. Uh, but that was, in each case, all three of these women uh, were very compelling figures who seemed to, in some sense, capture the imagination of the uh, public at particular moments uh, in American political history, even if they didn't capture the votes of mm-hmm. the citizens who were uh, participating in the primaries. Well, that is a big part of it, as, as far as I can tell. And I love history, as anybody who listens to this show regularly knows, that you don't necessarily have to achieve the ultimate goal that you're fighting for, but to change the conversation, to seize the moment, and, as you say, capture the imagination that's big. I mean, it doesn't look like Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party and that we will have our first woman candidate, but he has changed the conversation very, very successfully, more than anybody uh, can imagine. So being the right person at the right time. Why do you think it's important today, in 2016, for people to learn about these basically unknown moments in American history? How, How can people process that and integrate that into being citizens now? I think that it really very much helps to contextualize uh, Hillary Clinton as a candidate in this race, whether people favor her or or, uh, disfavor her, whether they plan to vote for her or whether they oppose her candidacy. It is an untold story that I think really tells us something about the nature of American democracy and how long uh, and hard-fought the struggle has been to get us to where we are today in the United States um, in the effort to really expand uh, the array of candidates who are running for the presidency and uh, to enhance the participation of all citizens in the democratic process. Yeah, democracy, what a concept. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's difficult. It's the core. It's really the core of what this is all about. And uh, in each of these cases, these were uh, candidates who were engaged in trying to widen uh, and to make more um, robust uh, the participation in the democratic process of women and minorities, uh, and to try to, in some sense, challenge. Uh, the uh, old, uh, hardened, and hackneyed political traditions that had reserved hmm. the power in our democratic process to uh, a few elites. <laughs> yeah, that a lot of that continues on and on and on. And I, I guess uh, psychologically as well as historically, people like to uh, hold on to the familiar even if it's not so good anymore, you know, and, and having the elites run the country, the, the same, you know, basically old white, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men for the most part. I mean, we had one breakthrough with uh, John Kennedy, but, uh, you know, holding on to that, it's, it's tough to let go. And interesting, you know, about being dragged to make changes that uh, in the aftermath of, of the war against Southern independence, also known as the Civil War, Congress considered allowing black men voting rights, African Americans 
got the vote well before women did. Does, does this outcome shed any light on why the nation may have an elect, elected an African-American before it has an elect, elected a woman to the presidency? Well, you know, that's a very interesting dimension of this story, Bert, and it's, uh, as you point out, uh, there are deep historical roots uh, to this story. During Reconstruction, uh, as the Congress debated the 14th and 15th Amendment, conferring citizenship and then voting rights on African-American men, the suffragists, women suffragists, saw this as a moment to try to press the case for voting rights for women. And they didn't succeed in doing so. Um, that was a, uh, that, that would be deferred, of course, until 1920 when the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. But it didn't go unchallenged. And that's where Victoria Woodhull really mm -hmm. emerged as the first woman to seek the presidency. She was very much of a mind that having a uh, candidate who embodied a cause might well rally Americans perhaps more than a broader philosophical change that women suffragists hope to achieve by promoting, you know, the uh, the fundamental truth, as they saw it, of women's political equality. So I'm not sure that, I mean, the, the politics of it were were certainly complex. And the suffragists, of course, mm -hmm. some of the leading suffragists resorted to racist argumentation and making their case that uh, certainly white women should be allowed to vote if African-American men were being enfranchised. And, of course, lost in this mix were African-American women mm, who were given rights as citizens under the 14th Amendment, but were still denied voting privileges. So it's a, it was a complex uh, interplay of forces uh, that ran through that entire period in the late 19th century. Interesting, trying to analyze the degrees, you know, quantify the degrees to which there is discrimination. Hmm, is it more against black men or all women? The fact that we're talking about this is, yeah, we got work to do. If you just tuned but in we to... We often, you know, we often lose sight of African-American women in this yes, mix. And yes, That's where Shirley Chisholm, you know, in yes. her candidacy in 1972, yeah. um, she memorably said that she had faced more discrimination in her political career as a woman than she had as an African-American. But there's ample evidence that she faced both throughout her effort to to really make her way within the Democratic Party and uh, to be part, really, of an insurgency that overthrew the, you know, uh, the ruling uh, elite that she and others helped to dislodge uh, over the course of uh, post-World War II American history. I love insurgent candidates. What can I say? And, it, you know, <laughs> that, that that helps make change. It really, really does. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Ellen Fitzpatrick, author of the new book, The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the American Presidency. I'd like to do this chronologically. What the heck? And talk about getting elected, winning money. Let's face it, is crucial to politics always has been, I think it's a lot worse now than it ever has been. 
And to raise significant money, potential investors need to have some degree of reassurance that their investment would not be for nothing. They had to see. Correct. It's going to, there's a chance of paying off. And Hillary Clinton has uh, been the only one to raise major money except for the, can, for the uh, character you introduced me to anyway, Victoria Woodhull. She ran for president, as you mentioned, well before women even had the right to vote, way before. Tell us about her and about her unique financial advantage and how she made use of that. Yeah, Victoria Woodhull really is an interesting figure, particularly in light of the conversation that's going on in the current campaign. Talk about ties to Wall Street. She actually was a Wall Street broker. And she had had a kind of, not kind of, a very remarkable career. She grew up in relative poverty in a very hard scrabble, uh, you know, uh, family that had their more than their fair share of difficulties. Her mother seems clearly to have been mentally ill. Her father was a grifter. And at the age of 15, she was um, essentially married off by her parents to a physician who had been called in to treat her for a fever. He turned out to be a near-do-well opium addict and um, a guy who spent most of his time in bar rooms and brothels. She left him and uh, after having two children, and went on to have a career as a spiritualist and a clairvoyant. Mm. And she went to New York City uh, in the late 1860s, where, with her second husband, a Civil War veteran named Colonel Blood, who she, uh, and she then met uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the Uh richest men in America, who turned out to be, in addition to very wealthy, a super eccentric, who uh, was very interested in Woodhull's powers as a clairvoyant and her capacity, he thought, to put him in touch with his deceased mother. He also learned that Woodhull and her sister, who was also a clairvoyant and spiritualist healer, seemed to have uh, offer remarkably prescient stock tips. And so he decided to back them, and uh, Woodhull began speculating in gold and bonds and became incredibly wealthy. Right. Vanderbilt uh, staked the two women, and they became the first women to open a brokerage firm on Wall Street. Wow. And with the fortune that she amassed, uh, Woodhull bought you know, a mansion in Murray Hill and uh, presided over a, a really kind of a, an, an oddball salon in which she would bring corporate leaders and anarchists together oh. for evenings of discussion oh and conviviality. And through all this, she became involved in, uh, she moved into the circles of the women's suffrage movement. And they were only too glad to see her. First of all, she had a lot of money and she offered mm. to contribute to the cause and uh, I think it was Elizabeth Cady Stanton or, or maybe Susan B. Anthony who memorably said, you know, uh, when Woodhull came to Washington to participate in a suffrage meeting that, you know, they were really getting traction now. Wall Street had come uh, to, uh, to Washington to a suffrage meeting. And so Woodhull uh, was able, once she decided to run for president in 1870, she announced her own candidacy was able to self-finance uh, her endeavor, 
and she started her own media operation, oh, a my. newspaper that was designed to promote her candidacy. Interesting. And so many aspects of that are interesting. You know, one wonders, I mean, now there's so many things a candidate can spend money on, mailings, uh, you know, TV ads, radio ads, et cetera, et cetera. Back then, it was all print media. They didn't even have electricity. So print media was. was. And it was also the thing about uh, Woodhull that she was strikingly modern in her approach. You know, in this period, a uh, presidential candidates were not really supposed to be out campaigning and promoting themselves. That right. was seen as really a sign that they lacked the virtue that was really required of the right. office that they, uh, to fulfill the office that they were seeking. So yes. when Horace Greeley went on a limited campaign tour of Connecticut, the newspapers condemned him as the, quote, great office beggar because he gave a couple of speeches. And, you know, the idea was that they would stand at a dignified remove and be tapped by the party leaders. Well, nobody was going to tap Victoria Woodhull, no. so she created her own political party, her own campaign operation, and her own media um, vehicle to uh, try to get her on the map. And she succeeded remarkably, and certainly in, in acquiring a national profile and uh, eliciting a great deal of coverage of her uh, bid for the presidency. Interesting. And why is it that people haven't heard of Victoria Woodhull? I mean, is it that the, the writers of history books, you know, just go along with, with what's myth, what's the official history? I mean, this is a significant uh, figure in American history. Well, she's known to historians of women primarily for what happened after this uh, presidential run, where she was, uh, she really became famous as a free love advocate and a radical. Um, and but this moment where she mounted the presidential campaign turns out to have been pivotal, I think, in her the positions that she later publicly took and really became famous for. I think. The answer to your question in part, Bert, is that this, the stories of this kind about women presidential candidates have fallen really between uh, presidential historians who tend to have focused on males who yeah. became president. Mm -hmm. Women have not mm -hmm. uh, succeeded in this uh, domain on the one hand, and then historians of women who haven't really focused much on presidents since a uh, few women have ever, you know, no woman has ever achieved the office in the United States. So there, there seemed to be a kind of uh, way in which these, uh, this part of the, the story, this dimension of American political history dropped out of, out of the narrative over time. Uh, and I find that's always the most interesting history, always the history that's you know, not really well known. It's not part of the official myth that people believe so often to be history. In the ni late 19th century, very interesting period. You mentioned the spiritualism. Uh, there was kind of a lot of that uh, uh, going around. What was it about late 19th century America that, that maybe you know, created the context for a woman with such diverse interests to become a national political figure? Well, part of it was the activities of the suffrage movement, but it was also the fact 
that late 19th century Americans had lived through just a, an extraordinary yeah, change yeah. in the world that they inhabited. I think it was Henry Adams who memorably said that, you know, he felt that he was not living in the same country in which he had been born yeah, in the late, late 19th century, that <laughs> so much had occurred. The emancipation of four million slaves, for instance, the political challenge that uh, was posed to the body politic, to the Union itself, the effort to integrate the seceded states back in to uh, our national, uh, our nation, uh, after the Civil War, to determine what rights uh, and liberties would be conveyed as a result of emancipation. All of these things um, were very much up in the air, and uh, it inspired people like Victoria Woodhull and some of those who followed her campaign to imagine that it was a moment in which previously unthinkable uh, things could occur in the United States, that really radical and revolutionary change might take place. In 1870, Victoria Woodhull was saying that, you know, less uh, change than we have already observed could put a woman in the White House next year. This was in 1870, Hmm. long time ago. Yeah, well, a little (laughs) bit. uh, You know, there was that sense of being at a kind of liminal moment uh, during Reconstruction. We know, uh, however, that the outcome... um, really uh, was less than satisfactory on all all fronts that many of the liberties uh, that were uh, conveyed through the constitutional amendments were rolled back uh, with the rise, of course, of uh, Jim Crow and Mm -hmm. uh, segregation and Mm -hmm. uh, the post-Reconstruction South. So, um, you know, a whole another half century of and beyond efforts had to be uh, really undertaken to really vindicate the rights that uh, African Americans, in theory, in theory, uh, won in the aftermath of the Civil War. Big changes take a long time to happen, as we've seen. Take they do, long. yes. And you know, the in one of the things that I think is quite compelling about the story that I looked at is the generations of uh, women who really committed themselves to trying to advance uh, women's participation in national politics despite, you know, very, very persistent and discouraging obstacles along the way. Oh, yes. And you reminded me of uh, my own mother uh, coming up to uh, New Hampshire from Massachusetts, in 1968 to help for uh, Jean McCarthy. It was, I, I, you know, women were a big part of it back then. Of course, Jean McCarthy was not a woman, but, you know, I, it was great that, you know, we, one just accepted that, that women are part of the democratic process. But uh, Well, it, it is amazing to think about when I think, you know, my mother, who is 94 years old, wow. um, was born only uh, two years after women got the right to vote. And um, here she is in 2016 witnessing, uh, you know, what is likely to be the first woman to be nominated for the presidency. Uh, So that's within the lifetime of a single individual. That's a big deal. And talk about um, amendments and, and, you know, making real changes. 
I was surprised to read that, that Victoria Woodhull thought the 19th Amendment was unnecessary. Can you explain that, please? Yes, that was a, she was a pretty clever on this score, and she was far from alone in it. She actually took a position that a husband and wife team had, uh, had advanced earlier and brought it to the national stage. She became the first woman to testify before the House uh, uh, Congressional Committee when she appeared before the House Judiciary Committee and made the argument that under the 14th and 15th Amendment, she uh, claimed, women were already enfranchised because Mm -hmm. uh, they were citizens of the United States and the 14th Amendment made it unlawful, uh, really, to prohibit uh, any um, citizen from being denied uh, liberties um, and that were due to them as citizens had they, if, you know, those who were born and naturalized uh, in the United States enjoyed certain uh, liberties that could not, uh, no state could right. uh, in any way uh, abridge. So um, her argument was that women who were born and naturalized in the United States were therefore citizens and should be able to vote. Under the 15th Amendment, the language was a little bit more complicated for her position because it, uh, claim, it, it asserts that the right of citizens to vote can't be abridged by the United States or any state yeah. on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And what she wanted was for, for Congress to issue a declaratory act saying that women were covered under the provision. Uh-huh. It should be understood they were covered under the provision, provisions of the 14th and 15th Amendment. And she had, uh, she got some sympathy for that position. Uh, she didn't carry, the petition didn't carry, but imagine if it had 50 years before women actually achieved hmm. the right to vote, had she been successful, they would have been voting in 1870, and our entire political history is likely to have been quite different. I'd say so. Having to be a macho candidate might not be so valuable as uh, so many have done, including Teddy Roosevelt. And just uh, just wanted to one quick question here. After President Wilson, the president uh, during the uh, uh, First World War, he suffered a severe stroke in 1919. His wife, Edith Wilson, ran the executive branch of government for the remainder of the president's uh, second term until 1921. It wasn't, uh, there's reasons why uh, this wasn't leaked out there. No, you know, I guess the, the White House didn't want anybody to be aware that the president had had a stroke. Had this been known, do you think this too could have been a step forward for women? I mean, she was the, the executive I'm not sure about that. I think in the context of that time, uh, amid the suffrage movement, it actually might have played differently yeah. and been construed by opponents of suffrage to argue that uh, here was a meddlesome woman who had, you know, access to power and was usurping, ah, you know, hadn't been elected to, to the presidency and was usurping uh you know, rights and privileges that didn't belong to her. So oh it, I wouldn't underestimate the strength of uh, and the nature of the arguments that were used to oppose women's suffrage uh, in the early 20th century. And along those lines, 
the strength of the arguments and the sentiment against having a woman president that persisted well into the 20th century when Margaret Chase Smith ran yes. for president in 1964, uh, the, you know, something like 40% of Americans who were being polled at that point said they would not vote for a well-qualified woman for president, even if she was the nominee of their own political party, and in all other respects was a suitable candidate. Did they... So the resistance to women in that position uh, has, uh, you know, again, uh, fairly deep roots. Yeah, that is pretty uh, interesting. And as you describe it, I'm surprised and I'm not surprised at the same time. I mean, let's face it, you know, there have been a lot of attitudes through the years and, and opinions and beliefs change very, very slowly. And Margaret Chase Smith, I vaguely remember her running for president. And I, I thought I took notice when you wrote about President Kennedy, who was, of course, planning on running for reelection in 1964, saying he saw her as a potential opponent. Uh, talk about that, please. Yes, there was a lot of discussion in the summer and fall of 1963 about Margaret Chase Smith as a potential candidate for the Republican mm -hmm. uh, nomination for president. And in the very last co press conference of his presidency in November of 1963, shortly before he left for Dallas, uh, John F. Kennedy was asked about the uh, prospect of facing Margaret Chase Smith in an election in, in his bid for re-election in 1964. And it's an amazing bit of audio tape, which you can hear at the Kennedy Library, in which when he's asked this question, there's a whole auditorium full of newsmen, and the question alone sparks an outbreak of just, you know, laughter yeah. in the audience about even the idea that a woman would be a contender in a, a presidential race. And Kennedy actually responded uh, sort of uh, a bit puckishly, but uh, said that uh, he had great admiration for Smith, and she was a formidable, he said, political figure, that he would not look forward to uh, campaigning against her, and repeated uh, this phrase that she was formidable and said, uh, you know, sort of gallantly added, if that's the proper thing to say about a very fine lady. Of course, he knew Margaret Chase Smith well. They had served in sure. the New England delegation in Congress right, for from Maine, many, yeah. many years. And she had been a fierce opponent of his nuclear test ban treaty just that summer. And he was extremely disappointed that he had not been able to enlist her support for that treaty. She was very, very hawkish on American foreign policy during the Cold War when she was in office. So, um, you know, he took it seriously, but uh, very few others uh, in that audience that day did. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Ellen Fitzpatrick, author of a brand new book, the highest glass ceiling, women's crest for the presidency. And Margaret Chase Smith has a little bit in common with, well, somebody somewhat known, Lindy Boggs. Her, her husband, Congressman Hale Boggs, was killed in a plane crash. She took a seat in Congress and became a force in her own right. There's the so-called widow's mandate, which propelled Margaret Chase Smith into elective office. But she was not exactly what many expected. She, she was not a placeholder, correct? 
Yes, she was in a, she had actually uh, been very involved in running her husband's uh, congressional office. Uh-huh. She's very interested in politics. She worked very closely with him. And when uh, Clyde Smith died in office, and in fact, as he was dying, a uh, press release was issued in which he called upon his constituents, since he was coming up for re-election, to vote for his wife should he not survive to run in the upcoming primary. And the main Republican Party went along with this, uh, in part uh, along the lines of the widow's mandate, which worked this way. They would uh, have a woman who was the daughter or wife of the deceased office holder uh, run in a by-election or be appointed by the sitting governor to fill out the term. But the notion was that that would be until they could find a suitable male candidate (laughs) to run and then take her place. Well, Smith uh, refused to get out of the way, and she competed not only in the by-election, but for the regular seat, and she won, and uh, really became the uh, longest-serving woman in Congress in the 20th century, Hmm. and the first to be elected both to the House and the Senate, and had really a very, you know, remarkable political career. By 64, she was a national political figure, greatly admired by many Americans. And I remember, I was... 13 at the time, and uh, thinking, you know, I like her. I'd like to have a, a woman president. I just I disagree with her on f- defense policy. She was very hawkish. Did that serve her well? I mean, the times were pretty hawkish, let's face it. Did that help or yes, hurt her did. political ambitions? It did serve her well during the Cold War, and it served her well in the state of Maine, where she managed to get an enormous amount of uh, federal money for uh-huh. Uh, the Bath Iron Works oh, and for sure. defense industries that were extremely important to the working people of Maine, obviously. Um, and so in that sense, that's true. She's a complicated figure, though, because also during the Cold War, she was the first member of Congress uh, and certainly did so most dramatically to publicly stand up and oppose Senator Joseph McCarthy's anti-communist crusade. And she did that within the very first few months of McCarthy's uh, 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 anti-communist investigations. In February of 1950, he announces that in Wheeling, West Virginia, in this infamous speech, that he's aware that there are over 200 communists uh-huh. uh, who are America. currently employed in the federal government, and um, then began uh, his investigations. And in June, Margaret Chase Smith stands up in the United States uh, Senate and challenges McCarthy, who was a member of her own party, in her famous Declaration of uh, Conscience, only a few other senators, all of them men, of course, because she was the only woman serving, right. uh, endorsed that declaration. But it was an extraordinary document that really um, rewards reading even today. Wow. And one can't help but notice that oftentimes in politics, sometimes women have more, uh, shall we say, chutzpah, than men. (laughs) She certainly did. There's no doubt about it. And she remained fiercely independent um, throughout her political career. You know, one of her colleagues in 
Republican colleagues uh, once said of her, you know, if she votes with us, it's a coincidence. So, <laughs> you know, they they just couldn't ever predict which way she was going to go. She was actually quite liberal on uh, many um, uh, sort of domestic issues. She supported, as did her husband, uh, the uh, Roosevelt's New Deal, and uh, she she backed much of uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program. Uh, so, you know, it was in the realm of foreign policy, however. She served on the Armed Services Committee that uh, she, you know, was clearly very conservative in that uh, uh, arena. Did her name get placed in nomination at the 1964 convention? How did that effort uh, come to its conclusion? It did. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing about her campaign, Bert, is that Margaret Chase Smith had in, had really, uh, you know, achieved what she accomplished in Maine, re-election time after time, in part through this fierce independence and the positions that she took, uh, but also in a very direct uh, and very engaged style of representation and campaigning. And she refused political, uh, she refused campaign donations. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. And in 1964, she also was extremely proud of her record of attendance, of meeting every single roll call, um, when uh, in the in the Senate, and so when uh, she decides in '64 that she's going to run for president, she vows the following: she will not make any campaign promises, she will not accept campaign donations, and she will not miss any vote in the United States Senate where the citizens of Maine had sent her to represent their interests. Now. Does this sound like a successful campaign strategy in modern uh, presidential uh, politics? No, it's, it wasn't. It's admirable, and but in, you yeah. know, her it really crippled her and yeah. prevented her from uh, really uh, mounting a robust uh, and effective campaign. Yeah, it's admirable, but <laughs> you got to have. Yeah, it. it's not a you know. Unfortunately, the moral high ground hasn't always produced victory, as uh, we all know. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. And when you were talking about the power of money before, thinking about uh, the lack of moral high ground, Nixon, his time to leave was happened when the big moneyed interest decided it was time for him to leave. It wasn't until that point when the big money people behind the Republican Party said, eh. He's gone. He's out of here. Money is just... Well, yeah, you know, and the other thing, Bert, is that these these campaigns have, as you well know, become more and more expensive over time, oh, and that's partly a result of the primary system. The primaries really weren't all that important for a good part of the 20th century. True. In 1960, John F. Kennedy uses the primary system to try to persuade the party elite that a Catholic can actually... Uh, win an election for president, and he so he campaigns vigorously uh, in every available primary to try to make his case that uh, he can get the votes. And so, of course, in our own time, these primaries have proliferated, mm. and uh, millions of dollars, oh. uh, not simply because of the primary, but in tandem with the primaries, is being is really required to compete aggressively. 
Yeah. Um, the media-saturated nature of modern politics, uh, the professionally run and managed campaigns, all of this costs an enormous amount of money. And there you had Shirley Chisholm in, in 1972 yes. trying to ru- run a campaign on her American Express card. You know, I mean, she couldn't get the money. And no one prior to Hillary Clinton has ever succeeded in putting together the war chest that has been required. It's ironic, of course, that um, this is now, the Clinton's success in this regard is often cast as uh, a liability, as a negative, that, you know, she's too close to big donors and big money and financial interests. Well, it's true, and I definitely want to talk about that before the end of the hour, but I have to say, I loved Shirley Chisholm. I found her terribly inspiring. I just thought, this is, she's for real. She captures the imagination. Why did she, all right, who, some people may not remember, believe it or not. She was a member of Congress, I believe. Why did she think she had a shot at the presidency in 72? Because Shirley, you know, Shirley made the point that for her whole life she had been told that she didn't have a shot uh-huh. at most of what she had achieved. Right. She began her political career as a student at Brooklyn College by going to the local meetings of the 17th Assembly District Democratic Club. It was run in Brooklyn by a Irish political boss and machine. Uh. And even though the district was becoming increasingly African-American and Puerto Rican, these white guys oversaw the entire spoils system and shut out uh, many of the uh, constituents who, like Chisholm, aspired to participate in the process. But she wasn't discouraged by that. She stayed in, and she began, you know, by doing the kind of women's activities, of, right. you know, uh, decorating, uh, you know, um, cigar boxes for raffles and this kind of thing. And then eventually she decides, hey, you know, I'd like to be a candidate myself. And she runs for the New York State Assembly, and uh, she faced enormous opposition even there in trying to advance herself as a political candidate. But she persevered, and she won. And then in 1968, she decides to run for Congress. And she, again, a lot of opposition, even from African-American uh, men who uh-huh. were uh, her compatriots, really, well, in trying to mount yeah. a political insurgency against that old machine, they were discomfited by the idea of her political ambitions. And Mm -hmm. she basically said, you know, to hell with you. I'm going to run anyway. I don't care if you approve of me. And same thing in 1972 when she puts herself forward as a candidate for president. She was discouraged from doing so. And she was also, in 1972, very dismayed to see white feminists who celebrated in principle the idea of a woman running for the presidency, refusing to endorse her. Yeah, she I was, was furious at Bella Abza, yeah, I was wondering who about insisted that. that she stand on the dais with Chisholm when Chisholm announced that she was running for president and then withheld her endorsement of Shirley. 
Well, I, I have to assume that uh, Bela Abzug was uh, for George McGovern, again, one of my favorite uh, candidates. Uh, but th- that was that was somewhat surprising. I wonder if, do, do you think her, she thought there was a bigger barrier being a woman or being African-American? Well, I think what, what was in the mind of people like Abzug and Friedan and uh, yeah, Gloria Steinem, right, who, right. who certainly have said as much, was that, it was so important to defeat Richard Nixon that um, Shirley's uh, campaign, which wasn't, they thought, going to go anyplace, uh, would be a waste of, you know, energy. And so it's not, you know, they ran as, uh, Friedan ran as a delegate, and, and Steinem did eventually um, move over to Shirley's col- uh, column. But their position was, you know, that the stakes were so great right. that um, they couldn't uh, take the risk uh-huh. of backing Shirley well. um, and instead, um, you know, it, because she would be a surefire loser. Right. Uh, so instead, they backed the surefire loser, <laughs> George McGovern, who, you know, memorably, you know, got slaughtered yes. in 1972. Well, let's hope we don't see that now. A lot of people have said, well, I like Bernie Sanders, but we have to beat the Republicans, especially now that they got this Trump weirdo up there. And people are saying, well, Hillary's a lot stronger than Bernie. We have to stop Trumpism. There's no doubt about it. That's my particular opinion here. I, I hope it's true. And this is, is a fascinating thing to, to read in there. During the Watergate hearings, they uncovered some action, some skullduggery by Nixon against Chisholm's reputation. Do tell about that, Yeah, please. that was amazing. Do tell. That was amazing. The, uh, Shirley Chisholm was a victim of a dirty trick by the Nixon White House during the California primary in 1972. Now, Shirley, surely, surely was no threat to Nixon politically. But she had been a vociferous critic of Nixon and, you know, I knew I loved powerfully her. anti-war yes. throughout her uh, time in Congress and extremely outspoken in that regard. Yes. And uh, that didn't go down well with the Nixon White House. And so <laughs> what happened was that uh, some of the uh, Nixon campaign uh, staff stole some stationery from Hubert Humphrey's headquarters, and they wrote upon this stationery a fictitious press release, uh, allegedly coming from Humphrey's campaign rather than Nixon's, mm-hmm. saying that African Americans should be leery about voting for Shirley Chisholm because she um, had a history of mental illness, <sighs> that she had been hospitalized repeatedly, put in mental institutions in the past for dressing as a transvestite and behaving erratically. She was psychotic and, you know, sort of found on the streets. And um, they had actually come up with the details of what she purportedly uh, displayed in the way of psychiatric symptoms from a textbook of (laughs) psychopathology and transcribed that into what they said were quotes from a a psychiatrist that had treated her. The whole thing was completely made up. It never happened. Did the press pick up on it? Did it get any traction? 
it didn't because the mainstream press didn't report it, but it was widely circulated, and Mm -hmm. it was a body blow to Shirley Chisholm, who was really upset, really devastated by the depravity of this. And not until Watergate, sometime later, did it come to light that this had actually been engineered by the Nixon White House. Oh, man, paranoia, as they say, will destroy you. Jeez, that's yeah. amazing. That is amazing. Again, uh, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with our guest today, Ellen Fitzpatrick, new book, The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the Presidency. One last question about Shirley Chisholm, again, who I thought was terrific. Did she pave the way for Hillary Clinton's run for president? Why or why not? You know, that's a great question, and I'll tell you something that I decided after doing this research The pave the way metaphor doesn't really describe what happened here because no woman could pave the way for another woman. The obstacles really in some sense weren't removed. They were simply repeated and revisited with each successive candidate. In other words, these women candidates really didn't have the power and weren't successful enough to remove the impediments that stood in the way of their successors. Now, that's one point. On the other hand, Shirley Chisholm was part of an insurgency within the Democratic Party after 1968 that pressed rules changes on the the parties, both parties, in fact, ultimately changed their rules to ensure that more women and minorities would be represented in state delegations and therefore at the convention and in the selection process. And so in that sense, um, Chisholm really was important in creating an entree for the future uh, Barack Obama candidacy and Hillary Clinton's candidacy today. That opening of the Democratic Party that occurred after 68 really changed the political landscape and has made possible the candidacies from women and uh, minorities that we see today. Well, we finally come to Hillary Clinton. In 1996, back in January 96, uh, she received the lowest approval rating of any first lady in modern history. What happened to her esteem during the 1998 impeachment hearings and and what do you make of that reversal? And go yes, ahead. It's so fascinating about this that, that Clinton was quite controversial as a first lady in her husband's first terms and the term in the failed health care initiative and her, you know, great prominence really in that um in that effort to advance uh health care reform uh and its failure um certainly uh affected her reputation. During the impeachment hearings, however, the public saw her very, very sympathetically. It's kind of ironic because, you know, in the in the when her husband was res- running for president, she said, you know, I'm not some little Tammy Wynette standing right, right. by my man. Baking but cookies. the fact that she did stand by her husband mm-hmm. during a very painful and humiliating uh, episode in their own personal history, never mind the political history of the country, um, 
really raised her in the esteem of many Americans, and her approval rating soared. So when the Clintons left the White House, she was very popular, and that certainly helped her as she began to launch her own independent political career when she set her sights on election to uh, the United States Senate uh, in New York State. And that was 2000, I believe. Yes. Yeah, I wasn't certain. Now, I I have to say, well, I don't have to say, but I will. I I have differences of opinion with with Hillary Clinton that she's much more hawkish than I would like, surprisingly so to me, not just the vote on on, uh, uh, Iraq, but Libya, Honduras, Syria, things like that. But my question is, does a woman, does she think she has to demonstrate hawkishness. She has to look tough on foreign policy because she's a woman. What? What? I, I hate to go into this territory, but I, I wonder if, if you know, why she is like that. Do you think? Because you know, of course, the the president is also commander in chief. Is this necessary? Is this really doing? Is this politically, or is she really like that? Well, it's you know, I I won't be. Pretend to be able to divine her inner thoughts on this subject, but I will say this that, you know, and Maureen Dowd uh, uh, memorably accused her of having her presidential ambitions in mind when she voted for the Iraq uh, war resolution and said in one of her columns in a a, 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 a sort of amusing twist of phrase that, you know, she knows that no woman candidate who has uh, love beads in her jewelry case is really going to have a creditable claim on the American presidency. Uh, It's also true in the case of Margaret Chase Smith that her hawkishness in foreign policy, her service on the Armed Services Committee, um, really did, uh, I think, led her to be taken seriously in a way, uh, even though not very seriously, as it turned out, uh, in her political career. So... I would argue, I think, that um, whatever uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, I think that her, the position that she took on many of these issues that you've raised is not unlike that of many mainstream Democratic politicians who were males, although it stuck to her in a way that it didn't, for example, to John Kerry and to Joe Biden. And... um, this whole question that Geraldine Ferraro was asked in, oh, yeah. uh, when she was running as uh, Mondale's uh, sure. running mate uh, when he ran for president uh, on, I think, Meet the Press, you know, she was asked by a reporter whether she would be able to press the button. And uh, she replied by saying, if I was a woman, would you? If I wasn't a woman, would you be asking ah, that good question? Good for her, yeah. And so the doubt that has lingered in the minds of many American citizens who, over a long period of time, expressed skepticism about when, whether women were equal to the duties of commander in chief of the military, that has been a persistent yeah. theme uh, in the, you know, sort of hesitation about electing a woman to the presidency. So yeah. I suppose women that have overcome that, in some sense, uh, show a kind of preparation. On the other hand, that very preparation uh, has, in Hillary Clinton's case, uh, 
been problematic from the uh, point of view of the left wing of her own party. Yeah, the traditional Democrats. I got to say, electing a black president, we thought was that was breaking a very high glass ceiling. That was wonderful. Huge. Huge. It was going to deal a serious blow to racism. Now that almost eight years have gone by, it seems to have made it much, much worse. How do you think? Not sure it's made it worse. It's more open. But it certainly has uh, made visible yes. the persistent uh, racial tensions in oh. our society. And I suspect if Hillary Clinton right. wins this election, we may see uh, those uh, similar uh obviously not the same, but tensions uh, over uh, gender as well that will uh, surface uh, throughout her presidency if she does, in fact, serve. If she does serve, uh, if she's elected and serves, her first term would end, uh, ironically, during the centennial of women's... Oh, right. uh, The ratification of women's (laughs) suffrage in 1920. So... Uh, you know, we're in for an interesting period no matter what. <laughs> that old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. That exactly. we are doing. <laughs> Fascinating book, The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the Presidency. Our guest today, author Ellen Fitzpatrick. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. We could talk about a lot more stuff. Thanks, Bert. Great questions. I enjoyed it. Well, good. Thank you. And going to go out with a, a song about uh, Thugs Club. It's about men having tremendous power and ruling the world. Brand new from Jeff Beck. Yeah! Right! Thugs Club. Who's up? I'll sing with a case full of cash down apes Singing alright Larry's alright We're going out to Larry Cause we got some questions Cause some of his sums don't add up As long as little Larry's alright Yeah, people like Larry are always alright So we'll feed you greed Till you're too fat to run Then you'll hear the bang bang of the poor man's gun Looking for David, has anybody seen him? His ignorant statements, brainwashing my nation But as long as David's alright Yeah, David's alright <laughs> We're going after George, that creepy little puppet This real man in those battleships, baby, I fuck it As long as Georgie Porgy's alright Generations of Georges are always alright So we'll sit and watch the horrible things that you do Someone points a finger at me, you just blame it on them. Cause it's a rich man's war, only the rich will win. Sit in their towers watching men suffering. But we won't fight your war no more. Cause it's a rich man's game, only the super rich win. Sit in their towers watching men suffering. But we won't fight your war no Seen with the devil, he's buying them diamonds. Australia's finest, Rupert's all right. Huh? Blondie's selling paper.
papers, he'll sleep tight at night. Melissa and Sean, you work for the foxes. Your presentation's crass and your opinions aren't facts. When you dumb down the news, you dumb down the future. Then just tell us what you want. Now, dumb dumbs will believe you. We'll sit and watch the horrible things that you do. And if someone points a finger near you, you just blame it on the. Earth. 